Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast, live from the Cockpit Theatre in London. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview that man, my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast, and in fact, this entire live experience here that you lot have all paid for, only exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, recorded in front of a live audience, yes, a real live, there are actual human beings in this room with me making noise and hopefully laughing and shouting heckles and all that kind of stuff. Um, I am joined by Steve Tufty Carver, Woking born and bred. Steve has been friends with Paul Weller, Bruce Foxon and Rick Buckler for over 45 years now. Known to everyone as Tufty, he calls himself a friend, a fan, and was eventually a roadie with the jam. And he promises plenty of stories from watching his mates going from playing gigs in Woking to Wembley, to the world. Let's give a huge cockpit welcome to the legend that is Tufty! A tea and a beer. Right, put your hands together for the best band in the fucking world, <laughs> the Jam! <laughs> Always wanted to do that. Cheers, John. <laughs> Let's go back to Woking 1976. Yeah. You said two things happened to me during that long, hot summer. Paul Weller moved into the house at the bottom of my garden, and I discovered punk rock. Mm-hmm. When you say he moves into the house at the bottom of your garden, this wasn't like what we, everybody now is building, like these garden offices. It's not this kind of thing, right? It, it was like the house that backed onto yours. Was that like- yeah, Nicky sat in a very similar spot the other month, year, and when Tufty lived at the house in the bottom of our garden, which it was a lie. They moved in another house at the bottom of our garden. Basically, they got kicked out of Stanley Road 
and relocated to our estate, weirdly, was named after royalty. I lived in Windsor Way and Paul lived in Balmoral Drive. But literally, our back gardens touched each other. Instead of having to go around each other's house, we just jumped over the back gate. As quick as that, one day I saw Paul mooching about in his new back garden and my brother Pete said to me, I went to school with that geezer, fair enough. And so obviously by now, Paul has thought, well, I've got to get a new local boozer. Weirdly, I went down, I chose a different boozer that night. I went down the pub and Paul was in there. And in my memory of it all, I said, hello, mate, you live at the back of my garden now. And he went, hello, you know, nice to meet you. Do you like the Sex Pistols? And it was, whoa, you know, and... And I went, well, I've been following the Sex Pistols in the music press. I've never seen them, but I'm really interested. And he went, well, we go going Tuesday. Come with us. It was that quick. Literally bumped into him on a Saturday. And by Tuesday, we were seeing the Sex Pistols together. It was that quick. And then, as I always say, I jumped on a roller coaster that lasted 45 years. Yeah. And at this point, the jam are not the jam that we know in the sense that they've not yet started playing songs like In the City in that way. But they are doing the circuit around Woking and they were playing like the British Legion and they had residency at Michael's and things like that. Yeah, they, they a very were, different type of band. They were doing birthday parties and bar mitzvahs and weddings and funerals. And I don't think I saw him do any of that, really. On the day we saw the Sex Pistols, Paul's dad drove us, which is kind of weird that your mate goes, do you want to see the Sex Pistols? And he brings his dad along. But it became evident very quickly that when we got to the venue, he was giving out phone numbers. So, you know, wow, this is a bit weird, isn't it? And then somewhere along that evening, Paul obviously said to me, we're in a band as well. My world got a bit mad and that was the first step. You know, here we are now. The Six Pistols gig was at the 100 Club. They were playing Tuesdays at the 100 Club and it was literally pay 50p on the door. I had seen that picture in the enemy, terrorise your fans the Six Pistols way. Here's a band that beat up their audience and, and I'm a sick fucker. And I just thought, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Any band that beats up their audience, I'm in. I'm definitely in. So, if I can pay for the privilege, yeah, absolutely. So, and obviously in them days, there's no computers, no mobile phones, no YouTube, no Alexa. No one knew what the Sex Pistols sounded like. I knew what they looked like. So we paid our 50p, went down the stairs into the 100 Club, and I was used to seeing Bowie and Mott the Hoople and Alice Cooper, where you bought tickets in August and you saw a gig in January and you sat in a chair and you listened to music. I went down in the 100 Club and their girls dressed in bin liners with purple hair and Johnny Rotten and Joe Strummer and Mick Jones at the bar drinking beer and like, wow, I've arrived. This is something else. I remember Rotten was like strapped up. He couldn't move. He, he was in bondage. He was all strapped up and girls were hanging upside down crucifixes on him. He looked so weird. I've never seen anyone look with that purple ginger hair with safety pins and bondage and crucifixes. And then they got on stage and played. And whatever I imagined them to sound like, that was it. That's exactly how they sounded. I was hooked. I would have went home that night and thrown every LP away for a Sex Pistols LP. They were phenomenal, life-changing moment. The next night I went down to my other pub where my other friends drunk and they just sort of said to me, where were you at the weekend? I went, I went to see the Sex Pistols. And I still remember one of them said to me, that's not proper music. And I just went, it's better than proper music. It, and it was, it was better. 
it was this mad youth club in London with people, as Paul would say, everyone was 20 years old, watching a group who were 20 years old playing music that this wasn't Emerson, Lake and Palmer or Rick Wakeman or David Bowie. I think Wilco said about David Bowie, he sung songs about spacemen and going to Mars. This was something totally different. There was a fabulous thing I saw on your social media channel the other day, which was, it was this letter from Paul that I think it must be in a book. Um, and it was his thoughts on 77 to somebody called Ian. And you found it in your garage, this book. So I'm going to read it to you. He said, and this is Paul writing back. He said, some people may not remember the musical climate before the Sex Pistols, but I do. It was drab, colourless and old. Then one magical night in 1976, whilst piled up on proper blues, me and my mates saw the pistols at an all-nighter at the Lyceum and nothing was ever the same again. Punk was just what was needed at the time. It brought a lot of kids out of the pubs or bedrooms and got them back in the concert halls and clubs. It was finally our time and our turn. Absolutely. Nailed it. Absolutely. It, it, it was just, you know, Alice Cooper. Who's Alice Cooper? You know, don't need this anymore. These, it was now. It, I, I think I read The Doctors of Madness once, The Sex Pistols supported them, Adam and the Ants, who used to be in Bazooka Joe, the Sex Pistols supported them. The 101ers, Joe Strummers, the Sex Pistols supported them. And they each said exactly the same thing. Our game was up. The minute the Sex Pistols walked on stage, our game was up. Joe Strummer said, we spent our whole lives saying to people, like us, like us, like us. And the Sex Pistols went, we don't care if you like us. It doesn't matter. And that was it. And Paul's I didn't know Paul before, but obviously his songwriting completely changed. Everything went 100 miles an hour. And um, I'll tell you, the last time I saw the jam play a social club, it was Christmas Eve 1976, going into 77. There's a pub near where I live called the Tumble Down Dick. The jam were going to play that Christmas Eve. That had to subsidise their gigs, so probably getting 100 quid for that and 50 quid for the 100 club, whatever. So we went to the, the Tumble Down Dick. Everyone's having a fantastic time. They're playing Slade and the Rubets and Shawadi Wadi, and everyone's dancing and everyone's happy. And then there's a Christmas raffle and everyone's <laughs> dancing and everyone's happy. And then the manager went, oh, ladies and gentlemen, we got this fantastic new young live band from Woking. Please put your hand together for the jam. They come on. You know what happens. Everyone sits down, live band. They play two songs. Everyone sat down, live bands. The manager, fearing for his job, just pulled the curtain on them. Just went, bosh, curtain closed, put your waddy waddy back on. Is the money, John, go. <laughs> As we were driving home, Paul just said, that's the last time we play any fucking gigs like that. Because now it's got to change. It's 1977, tomorrow. And, and that's when it changed. Yeah, it wow. completely changed. And this Woking contingent that you mentioned, I mean, you're up in Soho every weekend then, right? As Paul just said there, Woking was grey. And Paul said the other day, even old men wore suits with flares and grey. Everything was grey. Wallpaper was grey. Pubs were grey. You know, my friends were playing dominoes and darts and cards, and they were getting married. I think I was 20, and they were getting married. And I just thought, I don't want to get married and play dominoes. What the hell's going on here? I walked into the Roxy and the 100 Club. It was Technicolor. The girls were in Technicolor. It was fantastic. Girls wearing bin liners with pink hair. What more do you want? You know, <laughs> it's. And I remember, I remember the jam wore suits, and I remember saying to Paul, Paul, like ditch the suits. You look so old fashioned, man. You know, get the safety pins, get the ripped t-shirts. I think Paul's cleverer than me. He didn't do it. 
as you probably know, is <laughs> what was good, everyone turned up in like school uniforms. But fantastically, the girls wore school uniforms without trousers or a skirt, just stockings and suspenders. And, you know, <laughs> it was good. It was really good. good Sorry, good Charlie. Good <laughs> oh, you say that. I, I love a game of dominoes now, but I know what you mean. But time, time, I don't know how to play dominoes <laughs> at all. No idea. Um, and this is, so your mates are in the band, only you travelling up to Soho together, you're all going and seeing It's about, yeah, six kids, of right? us, seven of us, I suppose, yeah. yeah. Your mates, Paul, Bruce and Rick are in this band called The Jam. And initially it was kind of like you say, just like a few punters and a dog, I think is how Paul's described it at times, right? Yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there, there's this re- this residency Paul talks about. This is the back, the back of the live album, Dig the New Breed, where Paul talks about this sweaty, frantic red cow residency. First week, 50 people. Second week, 100. By the fourth week, there's a queue around the block. And that's exactly how I remember it. It's right near Hammersmith Odeon. There's a pub down there. And exactly as Paul remembers it, First night, because they had them badges by now, jam at the Red Cow, jam at the Marquee, jam at the 100 Club. And kids were starting to collect them. I was a punk and the Clash were great and the Sex Pistols were great. The Damned were okay. The Stranglers weren't my cup of tea. But there was a lot of rubbish. There was a lot of rubbish. The jam could play their instruments. This was obvious to anyone. So if 30 people went to the Red Cow on the first night, they told their mates and then the next night it was 100 and as Paul just said, by the fourth night, it was rammed. It was just people in a month. It was a month of Tuesdays or something. Um, and wonderfully, or I can remember, by the last night, everyone in the audience bouncing up and down pogoing. And when they all left, me, Nicky and my brother Pete would just pick up all the money off floor and there'd be <laughs> there'd be enough money for beer it was just <laughs> chris parry has been on the podcast who was the guy who signed the jam for polydor and it would be lovely to hear from you how yeah, how do your mates change when they suddenly get that record deal with polydor um and we'll talk about that in a sec but there is a chris parry story from you as well where you went to london with and shane mcgowan is linked in as well because shane mcgowan recommended the jam to chris parry shane was in our gang shane was one of the first i, I love shane he was brilliant he liked a beer. Shay did. I don't know if you, anyone knows, but and and so Shane was sort of saying that the record, the record company people sign the banshees, sign the jam, sign whoever. And I remember being in the hundred club once and I was sitting there with Shane and and we just bought a round. And Chris Parry walked in. He's obviously got a Polydor checkbook in his pocket. And he went, anyone want a drink? And I still remember Shane had literally took that much beer out of his glass. And Parry went, anyone want a drink? And Shane just went, I'll have one. <laughs> and it just, he didn't even drink it. It was just this mental, oh, a free drink. It was great times, great times. You know, we exploited the Polydor checkbook we did. As stupid as it sounds, we'd just go to London and go into Polydor and there'd be like people in suits and going, well, what do you want exactly? And we, we'd say, well, have you got any videos of the who? And they say, well, yeah, somewhere. And they, we sat in a sofa and they put videos of the who on. And then they'd come in and go, what exactly do you want? And we'd just go, well, have you got any beer? And they'd go, there's a fridge there full of beer. And stupidly just sit there on a Monday afternoon watching videos of the who drinking beer because it was free beer and you could. I remember reading Danny Baker. He said once in his book, the dam turned up at his door once and his dad went, Danny, there's free geezers here to see you. And the dams come up to his bedroom and they sat on the floor, sensible scabies and vanium. And, and Danny just went, what do you want? And they said, well, we've just signed a record contract. And Danny just went, well, you might as well just say you've going to the moon tomorrow because this doesn't happen. My friends who I drunk beer with in the Princess of Wales, 
told me they'd signed a record deal with Polydor, who had The Who on their label. Thinking back now, that's mental. That is actually mental. Can you remember that point where you first heard them on the radio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Kid Jensen, I think, promised Paul or John that he'd play, it was a Saturday lunchtime or something like that. Mrs. Weller always would cook for us. Cheese and tomato sandwiches, she used to cook. And and she said, oh, look, let's all sit around the kitchen table because Kid Jensen said he's going to play this record. And I think we sat there for two hours and obviously the jam were an unknown quantity. And I think he played out with it at the end. You know, he's just sat there for two whole hours to get, yeah, he's an up and coming. You know, anyway, that's the end of that. <laughs> but also I remember what, I remember once being around Paul's house with his mum and dad and the jam come on top of the pops. And the minute the jam come on top of the pops, I remember, I think it was Modern World. Paul left the room. And when he come back, <laughs> Stuberly went, you just missed yourself on telly. And he went, oh, I don't think much of that song anyway, you know, just <laughs> uh, which takes me on to my other favourite Top of the Pops story. I think the first time they were ever on Top of the Pops, I watched them with my mum and my dad and my brothers. And I just thought, wow, you know, my mates had just been on Top of the Pops. I should really go down the pub and celebrate. <laughs> so I went down the pub and I'm on about my second pint and Paul come running in. He went, well, thanks for fucking coming round for me. And I went, well, you were on top of the pops. And he went, that was recorded yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't. <laughs> You're in my TV box. Um, at that point also, you, I mean, you saw the jam like over what, 200 times? Maybe? It must have been. It was every weekend. And, you know, the Pistols weren't playing. They weren't allowed to. The Clash, I think, were too cool to. So the jam played every... It seriously seemed like I was doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Every week. Yeah, it was mental schedule. I think they were assigned to a, an agency called Albion Agency. And John was like, have guitar, we'll travel. And they would just take any gig. And again, I remember we went to see him at Hastings Pier. And Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers had pulled out, you know, and they're sort of like leather clad biker, heroin, junkie, punk thing. And they pulled out. So on the door, it was, you could either have your money back or see the jab. So <laughs> John said, well, we'll play it, you know, 50 quid, whatever it is. And all these leather-clad Hells Angels come in. And, you know, the three lads come on stage with white socks and, and black suits. One, two, three, four, bam, bam. Yeah. And all these rockers just stood there. And in my stupid, drunken, bravery, ignorance, I just thought, this is my favourite band and I'm going to dance. And I can only do the pogo, I can't dance. So I pogoed and these Hells Angels just looking at me, I remember just going, you got a kangaroo in your pocket, boy? You know, and I, it was just like... <laughs> and so it was a shit gig because these Hells Angels were saying to people, don't dance. So it was a shit gig. So we went in the dressing room afterwards, Hastings Beer has been demolished now, and I think Bruce threw a beer bottle at the wall. And it just went in and stuck, which seemed like a great thing to do. So we all started throwing beer bottles at the wall and they, they just went in and stuck. And then the promoter come in to pay Johnny's 50 quid, whatever, and just saw the, the dressing room was completely wrecked and went, what the fuck is going on on here? And one of us, quick as a flash, went, all them Hell's Angels come in and started throwing bottles about. <laughs> and he went, well, here's your 50 quid. You better get home quick. And, <laughs> and Chris Parry took me home that night, I remember. I didn't go on the tour bus and he went, Tufty, do you want to lift home? And I went, yeah. And he took me all the way from Hastings to Woking in his car 
and I slept all the way. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Bless him. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you about was, I don't know if you saw it last year, there was an interview that Paul did on Absolute Radio and it was like the decades thing. So he talked about the 70s and then it was the 80s, the 90s, and whatever. When he was talking about the 70s, his, his face literally lit up because he doesn't, from what I can work out, he's not somebody who likes talking about the past too much. He doesn't hey, he's a miserable fucker. Miserable kid, right? Um, and when he talks about this, talks about the seventies, his, his face lit up. But the bit was, it was almost like that pre-fame bit. It was the bit where he was like, and I'll quote him. He said, "Falling about drunk in the van, just fun, carefree." It was that, uh, you know, it's that David Essex film in it. That'd be the day. John used to borrow a cement van, A to B haulage or something. And it was always full of cement. So we sitting on cement bags and John, bless him, drove us. So John's probably 40 and we're 20. And we were stupid and drunk and there was a lot of spitting and farting. And, and, and God bless him. He put up with all this. I, you know, he must have thought these boys are going somewhere. I don't know how he could see it. But yeah, it was <laughs> it, mad, mad coming out of the Red Cow. There was a cafe there and you could get spotted dick and custard at midnight, I remember. I would never, ever say it was nothing really because it was everything. You know, when I was 20, suddenly my life just done that, you know, from playing dominoes and darts to sweaty solo clubs, which it, I was a kid in a sweet shop. It was brilliant. Well, it sounds fabulous. I mean, the, the other thing is we should talk about, let's talk about some of these singles and these albums that come through and the band really being huge, you know, the audience growing continually, having number one albums, number one sing singles, all that stuff. We should start in the city, obviously. Let's talk art school because the opening song on the album, we kick off. I don't know how many of you have seen the promo film because this was going to be a single and then wasn't. Well, I'm guessing they, did, yeah, they didn't know what was going to be the single, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's this video that they create, which I'll, I'll put on the show notes for the podcast as well. But so in it, you, your brother, and Nikki, Nikki Weller, yeah, right? Yeah. Talk me through the story of art school. Again, I don't remember any pre planning. John being John just went, boy, you two get in the van, you're coming with us. And we ended up at Shepherd and Studios, which was owned by The Who, wasn't it, weirdly? Yeah. The lads filmed in the city in their suits. And I, I'm sure there was no pre planning. And then they just went, right, now we're going to do art school. And suddenly this white paper appeared and they give us a pot of paint each and a brush and just went, be creative. <laughs> like, I've never been creative in my life, you know. It's just so it, but, And again, so that film got buried. I don't think I saw that for ages. It just disappeared because In the City was a single. Yeah, and, yeah. and then it, it suddenly turned up again and there it was. The great thing about it was, again, Shepard and Studios, Again, kids in the sweet shop. I remember walking about, they were filming Superman, the movie. So we were just mooching about. And I remember this, this guy just saying to us, do you want to see something really cool? And he took us in this massive hangar and it was Superman's Fortress of Solitude, just made out of polystyrene. And you just think, wow, you know, we've seen Superman before Superman. And then we just spend the rest of the day walking around the back lots of Dickens, London, smashing windows, you know, just, <laughs> just thinking, well, we're punk rockers. Let's smash some windows up, you know? <laughs> yeah, cool. yeah, as you do, yeah. <laughs> Are there particular songs that for you, like hearing them for the first time really stand out? When you think about like these songs, like, you know, that's, I mean, God, I could be here all day listening to them, but you know, that's entertainment, Town Called Malice, Tube Station. Are there ones where you go, oh God, yeah, I remember the first time hearing that song. That's as it goes later. Obviously they, they were getting better and better and bigger and bigger. I distinctly remember the first time I heard Away From The Numbers. We were doing The 100 Club quite a lot. We supported the vibrators a lot. Oh, the Tyler gang. 
squeezed sometimes supporting these bands it seems mad the vibrators a lot we supported a lot but i remember once we was in the hundred club in an afternoon and they played away from the numbers and as usual we went around the pub afterwards and i, I remember saying to paul you've just gone up a level that you know from then italy did it to away from the numbers and i just went i just suddenly it gone up a level a proper song wasn't it a real proper song you know and yeah all the other songs as they as they come out like most of you here waiting to get a single you know sometimes they were disappointments you know and sometimes but well let's name the ones that are disappointments tough to <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding i'd be honest you know like when they went absolute beginners and that i you know i'm not saying i went fucking hell that's brilliant you no know? But Paul said to me once down the pub, you've always been a punk, Tuffy. You know, I do like one, two, three, four. I do like that, you know. Hearing them play slow down at 180 miles an hour. If I close my eyes, that's a jam. You know, slow down with sweat and spittle and blood and speed. It, that That's a jam to me. That, that, that's how I remember them. Well, I'm looking forward to the Star Council section of this chat. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fucking style, cancel. Come on. Right. We should talk John Boys, actually, or John's Boys. So this came up with Eddie Filler on the podcast. And these were two secret gigs. Was that right? I remember in my mum, next to my mum's phone, I had a notepad and I used to write down all these, you know, Tuffy, you've got to come to this. It's called the English Roses or the Eaton Rifles or John's Boys. And I think anyone could work this stuff out, (laughs) you know. But yeah, the great time. Again, great times. Like secret little little secret gigs. Yeah, secret gigs. They want to try out new material. Uh, We'd done one in um, the Wheat Sheaf in Woking, turned into an absolute riot. You know, it was called the Jams Road Crew, you know, as if anyone worked it out. And, you know, so this pub absolutely heaving with people and it wasn't a jam road crew at all it was a jam i met yeah and it, it turned into a massive fight these things always do in <laughs> fact i think one weekend at the height of their career they played three times in one weekend of woking they'd done a youth club a pub and a ymca the only time john ever gave me a bollocking they played the ymca i think it was the time of sound effects and they played the ymca and me, my brother, and Pete walked all the way to, it's almost Ripley from Woking, and we sat in a beer garden all day drinking, and Paul was playing that night. And then we started walking home, and we were bollocked, absolutely bollocked. And halfway home, I said to Paul, we're not even going to make the gig. And I swear this is true. My brother was a dust cart driver, and he tooted and picked us up. We arrived at the gig in a dust cart. I swear this is true. We arrived at the gig in a dust cart, but we were still pissed. And um, I think Stuart asked me once, do that impression of Paul trying to sing Little Paul Soldiers when he's pissed. And he was just smashing guitars to pieces. And, he, you know, we rolled them, we're <laughs> the fucking prank. And, and they're just guitars. And so that was the middle gig. And I think the next day they were meant to play Shearwater Youth Club. So I went round for Paul and we were all looking at our feet as what had happened. And John come up to me. And I remember there was a stack of lager in the youth club, this big crates of lager. And John went, Tufty, there's your beer. <laughs> and I went, all right, John. And I was meant to go with, to Paris with him about a week later. And he went, by the way, you ain't coming to Paris. So, <laughs> so I got the blame for that one. But that's, I won't have a word said against John Weller, nicest man. I've ever known. There was a split second there where you said the jam played YMCA and I thought, I did. <laughs> I've not heard that. Right. Yeah. 
I would like to. Young man. Yeah. <laughs> um, you talked about sound effects. Let's talk about this. So 1980, you're what, 25? Bloody hell, I don't know. Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you are. Yeah. Um, and you decided to take a year off work. Yeah, I took redundancy. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. And then some, I mean, this is, like, you talk about like experiences and like, yeah. right place, right time. Well, yeah, um, I think my dad was shop steward at my factory and um, he come up to me and went, they want to get rid of people and they've named you, but they can't get rid of you because you've been longer, you've been here longer. And I went, well, how much money will they give me, Dad? And I remember it was, it was I think it was 1,400 quid or something. And I went, oh, I'm going, give us the money, I'm going. So I was out of work for a whole year and I loved it. And I was a young man out of work and I remember you could get in the pictures for a pound on a Thursday. So I just can't see any old nonsense at the pictures. Anyway, eventually the dole office called me in and they went, we don't think you're really trying to get a job. And I went, well, I'm, no, I'm not really. And they went, <laughs> it doesn't quite work like that. So I think they said, right, as from now, we're going to cut your dole money in half. So I went and got a job. And weirdly, there's a factory in Woking called EMI. So I went in to get a job in EMI. And for some reason, the bloke thought he'd give me a job, which was quite strange. And he went, right, okay. He goes, so you start Monday. And I went, all right, I'll see you Monday. So I just thought, you know what? I really didn't want a job. So I was, I was walking to the pub, the Drelmasaurus, and I hear, beep, beep, Tufty, what? He said, you got a job yet? John Weller. I said, no, I haven't got a job yet, John. Well, what's the matter? He said, you want to come on tour with the lads selling T-shirts? I thought, fucking hell, I'm going to be starting work, Monday. And I, <laughs> I went, yeah, all right, John, yeah, I'll do that, definitely. And so I went home and I said to my dad, like, I've got a job today, but I'm not taking it. I said, no, I'm going to sell T-shirts for a month instead. And obviously my dad just went, you bloody idiot, you know. A job for a month or a job for life. But I still think I made the right decision. I, <laughs> I was off on tour for a month. And then when I went back to the Dole office a month later, the woman said to me, well, you haven't signed on for four weeks. Where have you been? And I thought, right, how am I going to get out of this? So I went, oh, there's a funny story. I said, but my favourite pop group, in a language you'd understand, my favourite pop group were on tour. And I decided I was going to see every gig. She went, really? I went, yeah, I, went, I saw every gig. And she went, well, how did you get to every gig? I said, well, as luck would have it, they let me sit on the bus with them. And she went, right, okay. So where did you stay exactly? I went, well, as luck would have it, they let me stay in the hotel with them. And she went, right, okay. And where did you eat? Well, as luck would have it. And she said, so why would they do that to you? And I said, well, I sort of sold T-shirts for them. But you didn't get paid. No, no, I didn't get paid or anything like that. And she went, no, you ain't getting any dull money, mate. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> and you, you got like a Christmas bonus though, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Again, it, I think I think it finished Amos Smith Odin at Christmas. I think I was on sixty pound a day and sixty pound a week and ten pound a day to eat, which I didn't use to spend because food and drink was free. I was on about hundred quid a week, and at Christmas, John just went to me. The boys said they want to give you a Christmas bonus and give you a hundred quid, and you know, which was a lot of money in nineteen eighty. Mm-hmm. It meant a lot. Yeah, you know, I, I'll say it here. I watched the best band in the world play every night and got paid for it. It was ridiculous. I was, uh, me and Jill, Paul's girlfriend, was doing merchandise. We were selling T-shirts. Fantastic times. Hammersmith Odeon, there'd be like 200 kids wanting a T-shirt and you'd hear John come on stage go, right, you lot. And we'd just shut the case. And these kids would go, I want a T-shirt. Just go, no, no, you don't buy T-shirts when this group's on stage. You know, just go away. And, you know, I remember the promoters coming up to me and going, how, how much did you make on T-shirts? 2,000 quid. I am made and make 8,000 quid. I said, yeah, but we're not here to sell T-shirts. This is a group, you know. 
buy them made and sell leather jackets with studs in, you know. Who wants one? <laughs> exactly. I love the vision of this. It's like you're lugging a suitcase along. Like- Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A Dell boy. <laughs> like pulling it out. It, 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 it was just a packing craze. Yeah, clunk, click. <laughs> The first night, I think, was Birmingham. And me and John went up before anyone else. Me, John, and a, a mad jock called Jock, the tour manager. So we went a day early. And Jock had just buried his sister that day or something. So he was in a bad way. And he's sitting on the coat. And he'd go, Tuffy, you got any paracetamol? And I had like one of them little brown bottles of paracetamol. And he just poured them all into his mouth. And I just thought, Jesus, I've never seen anyone day drugs like that. So we got to this hotel in Birmingham. I started drinking whiskey with John. So there was Jock would bury your sister and John and me. We started drinking whiskey. And the paracetamol and the whiskey is probably not a good mix. So, so, so Jock had his head on the table and he was asleep. You know, so me and John went and took him and put him on, on a bed and then went, carried on drinking. And then Jock walked back in. And then he put his head on the table again and started drinking. And eventually the, the hotel manager said, look, we can't have this kind of behavior. He's obviously in a bad way. He can't just sit in the bar like this. So me and John took him to the bedroom, took all his clothes off apart from his pants, put him in the bed and really shoved the blankets so he couldn't get out. And 10 minutes later, he walked in the bar with his, his fucking pants. <laughs> a weird guy. A weird. And what was worse, I had to room with him. And once I sat up drinking with the band and there were two groupies, he took the two groupies to our room and I sat up drinking with the band. So like an hour later, I went to my room and I'd lost my key or something. So I knocked on the door and Jock went, who is it? I went, it's me. He went, all right, come in, Tuffy. I'll come in. It was dark. And he was in bed with a groupie and there was another groupie in my bed. And he went, Tufty, floor. I thought he's a fucking mad Scotsman. You know, I've got to sleep on the floor. But eventually I, I slipped in the... Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> eventually I slipped in the bed with the groupie, but that's a, another story. Oh, another story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I knew where that was going. There's a look of panic in my eyes at one point. But Jock, again, sorry to my daughter, but Jock, every quarter of an hour, would wake up and shag his groupie friend. It was, it was... <laughs> Happy times. Happy times. Happy times. <laughs> um... <laughs> Paracetamol and whiskey. See, it does work. Yeah. Maybe it's Viagra. <laughs> Viagra, that'd be it. Uh, Oct- <laughs> October 1982, did you see it coming? My brother Pete was working for the jam. He was a driver because we sort of shared merchandise and Pete would do it and I'd do it. We'd take turns. And Pete was John and Paul's driver. So every day he'd pick John up at Balmore Drive and Paul up 
and take them to the recording studios. One of them weird things that, you know, everyone thinks, wow, what a glamorous job. You take Paul and John Weller to a recording studio, fair play, you hear the songs being made. But when you're doing that every day, <laughs> you're hearing the same song over and over, you know, and it, it's not all glamour. Obviously, Pete taking John and Paul home every day, he heard knocking it on the head and all that, blah, blah, blah. And um, yeah, we, I was in the know really early. I can remember we had a couple of uh, dogs, me and Pete, and we used to take the dogs for long walks every day. And it's just, no, he's knocking it on the head. He's, he's calling it a day, which I, I actually thought was mental. You know, Paul's well documented saying, John, you're off your fucking rocker, mate. And uh, I, I, I said, I did turn into a Take That fan. I was absolutely... Oh, cause, I thought you meant literally for a second. Well, though. I did as well. You know, <laughs> take that. Come on. You know, but but for six years of my life, there was always a, a single, a video, a gig, an LP, a party. There was always something. And then someone told me, no, this is all coming to an end. And that said to me the other day, what do you think Paul would have done if he wasn't Paul Weller? I went, fuck Paul. What would I have done? You know, it's only <laughs> because this was six years of my life. And I was absolutely devastated. I said to my brother a few years ago, did we go to Brighton? He went, of course we did. But I think I've erased it from my memory because it, it was well, traumatic. Traumatic. Right? Yeah. All I can remember once is a, a, a girl at a petrol station saying to me, what are we going to do now, Tufty? And I went, I haven't got a clue. You know, and then as luck would have it, the Stoll Council come along and yeah, hey, you know. Because in my head, like most people, I always thought, you know, like yourself, you've got friends you went to school with and friends you played football with and friends you had at work. I always thought there'd be this weird gap where Paul would walk out of my life in 1982 and turn back in 20, what are we in, 2022? I just had to check, but yeah, um, I think so. Um, everybody's nodding. So and yeah, me sort so. of going, hello, mate, do you remember me? But yeah, that just yeah. never happened. It just never, you know, there were gaps where Paul would go away and get married or something and have kids and same here. but. You know, four years later, just get a phone call going, you fucking coming to Guildford or what? You know, it's just, and it, it's always been like that. We got Nicky and we got Anne and we got Paul and bless him, John. So it wasn't just, just Paul, you know, we're, we're friends. Yeah. We are, you know, Anne's one of my oldest friends. She is one of my oldest friends. And we, you know, we see her every week and all I get out in it, Sam, fucking hell tough. You had some laughs, didn't we? You know, she's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant. I love it. Well, you mentioned the Style Council. Let's talk about it. It's a new band, new sound. Yeah. And so much output in that first couple of years. Like loads of great singles. I mean, straight out of the blocks, we've got Speak Like a Child, Money Go Around, Long Hot Summer, Solid Bond, these albums, Cafe Blur, Our Favourite Shop. What did you make of that band? It took me a while. I'm not going to lie. It actually took me a while. Uh, 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 Gina Giraffe, if anyone knows Gina Giraffe, I almost remember saying, well, did you go to the first Style Council gig? And she went, no, I was heartbroken. And I kind of did feel like that. It took me a long time. The first time I saw the Style Council, John knocked on my door and went, Tufty, you come and see Paul's new band. Off I went, I think Dominion, Tottenham Court Road. And there's Paul without a guitar, singing songs that I'd never heard in my life. And my brain's gone, this guy used to be in the jam, you know. And I went back to the dressing room and John come over and went, what do you think of it, Tufty? And I just went, I don't know, John. I really don't know. John, bless him. Paul, Tufty fucking hates it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, cheers, John. F 
Fuck, thanks for that. So next day, so the next day, John knocks on the door again. Are you coming tonight? Yeah, go on. I'll give it another go. Went there next night. I remember Paul had changed out of a suit and he had a Pringle jumper on and he looked a much more relaxed. And guess what? I'd heard the songs once or twice and Paul wasn't quite so uptight and that. And I thought, yeah, look, oh, I like that one. I like that one. I like that one. Went back to the dressing room, walked in, picked up a beer. Paul walked over me. He put his face there and went, you fucking come back for more, though, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> That was it. And I did. I did. <laughs> we should talk about some of the highlights of the Style Council. We have to talk about Solo as well. And I don't know how we're going to cram all this in. So I'm going to quick fire questions. Uh, were you at Live Aid? Because that was obviously one no, of the big no, things. No, you not go no, to Live no, Aid? No, 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 no. Not on the guest list at Live Aid. No. Did you not get to that? I thought somebody no. else. <laughs> I think they're getting you confused with Phil Collins, who did both. Ah. Right. <laughs> Red Wedge. Red Wedge. Oh, yeah, I went, obviously went to a lot of the Red Wedge gigs. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good times. Yeah. Yeah. Mad times. See, it's a weird one for me. The jam were my band. And I, I've ne- maybe never called the Stole Council my band. But, you know, it, this, my story continues. I remember once, you know, Anne saying to me, Tufty, do you want to come and see the Stole Council in Bristol? And I went, how are we getting there, Anne? She went, oh, well, we've got a chauffeur-driven car. And I went, I'll oh, come on one condition. She went, what? I went, bring the chauffeur-driven car to my pub so people see me get in it. And, it just, it just, and I said, um, can you wear a hat? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, good times. Obviously, you mentioned your daughter who's here today checking that you're, I don't know what you're checking, the bo- booze intake. What are you checking, Charlie? Checking, checking Tinder or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we should talk about Ruth as well. So mm. 35 years married now. Yeah. Um, 1987, Weller was your best man. Yeah, he was, bless him. Yeah, and he volunteered, which was nice. <laughs> it was, that, yeah, it was, yeah, wonderfully. Seeing as I was slagged off his band, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, literally, I, you know, I, I went to see him once at the studio and said, we're getting married. And he just quick as a flash went, who's best man? I went, I don't know. And he went, me. And I went, go on then, you're top of the list. You know? Is that-? So he turned up at Woking Registry Office to be best man. He's look, obviously dressed everyone else, looks great in the photos. And Ruth's family are all from Manchester. So I'd pre-warned them that, a kind of famous pop star that you might not have heard of is my best man. And I remember Ruth's auntie Elsie went to me, if he's so rich, why hasn't he got any fucking socks on? <laughs> <laughs> and I still don't know why I didn't have any socks. <laughs> um, we should talk Paul Weller solo. So 1990, 89, 90, the record deal with Polydor finishes, the Star wow, Council's yeah. no more, right? Yeah. And your best mate suddenly is not in a great place. I distinctly remember going to Guildford Civic Hall to see him once. Again, it was probably one of them gaps where I hadn't seen him for four years or something. And I said to my brother, Pete, should we go and see Paul at Guildford Civic? And we bought, you know, a £3.25 ticket or something like that. I remember Guildford Civic, I don't know if you all know it, you know, I've seen everyone there. And (laughs) there was some people on the dance floor. And I'm not joking. I could look at the microphone and just go, Paul, all right. And he go, all right, tough. And it's just, I thought, fucking hell, there's no way back from this. And, you know, fair credit, the guy. It, you know, it, it was a long way down for a bit, wasn't it? You know, John, I think in one of John's videos famously says, going in record companies and they're offering quids for Paul. And he's going, this ain't fucking Tommy Tucker. This is Paul Weller. You know, it, it, it was a long way down, wasn't it? But I don't, I've never spoken to him about it. I don't know. Um, but wow. 
echoing what we all think in here to where he is now from that, you know, because a lot of people don't recover from that, do you? You know, I've seen Wright said Fred at Butlins, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, fucking hell. Right, yeah. I, I distinctly remember we was at Butlins and Wright said, Wright said Fred come on, and I'll give him a lot of credit. They walked on and they went, we're going to do six songs, three you've heard of and three you haven't. And, and, and that was it. <laughs> Brilliant, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they always were. They always were. Um, so this return, the Paul Weller movie, it's weird, isn't it? Because when you think about the jam and the style count, so actually in the length of time for us all, it's a really short period of time to have such an impact. So those bands were huge. And well, you're talking the style counts again. Style, the jam and the style counts. Yep. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. a tiny period now, of time yes. in our lives, isn't it, really? Six, five, six years, was it? Yeah, and then the style counts are, what, another six years yeah, on top yeah, of that, yeah. right? So in the, in the space of less than, what, no, around 15 years, we've had the jam and the style counts. Yeah, talk about Weller Solo. It's thirty years now since Paul Weller Solo. Christ, yeah. And you're right to be. I mean, Nelly Pillar talks on the podcast about they couldn't get a deal. You know, nobody was interested. No, People no, were saying to him, it. "It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. no, he's all washed up, mate. We're not interested." And suddenly now we've had two number one albums on the trot. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Presumably, you never kind of talk about those days of restarting the band, but when you have conversations about his music and, and making music now, and him still wanting to kind of experiment and, and move forward with it, what is it that drives him on? Do you have that kind of conversation? He said to me once. Being a songwriter, you never get a day off work because mm. that stuff going on, you know, <laughs> without sucking his dick all the time. He's <laughs> fucking lovely. When my dad died, you know, he was the first person to ring me up. I'm going to cry. And he went, I'm sorry. And I went, on sunset, got me through that. You know, it actually got me through that. I laid in the bar for hours listening to that LP. It, you know, this is what he means. You know, he's, he's not only my friend, this is the soundtrack of my life. And, you know, like everyone else here, I have good times and bad times, but it's that constant. I don't understand people who don't understand music. And I say to them, whether you know it or not, there's a soundtrack to your life. It's following you about. If you can't see it, that's a sad place to be in. It's there, isn't it? What a soundtrack, you know? And so many connections from his music. I mean, for me, discovering him as a solo artist was, uh oh, yeah, it was that first album. That was my connection with Paul. And over the past 30 years... It is all good for thing. Paul, you know, because I meant Fat Pop lived in my car stereo for a long, long time. And, you know, so when Paul rings me up and goes, Tuffy, you want a curry? And, you know, I just go, Paul, I just want to say, Fat Pop lived in my car stereo. And he doesn't take compliments great, does he? You know, he's like, Look, let's move on from that. But it's massive, isn't it? You know, that, what a great LP, by yeah. the way. You know, yeah. you know, that just to, on sunset and then fat pop, right? Let's have these chunks of pop singles. He's not following a formula, right? In English rows over and over again or something like that, you know? One thing I love seeing on your social media is, well, I say love, really like envious is the little, the VIP tags that you get. So every tour comes around. I'm sure that, you know, we're about to kick off with the next Weller tour. There'll be another one in a couple of weeks. Here he is, VIP. And it's always you and your brother. Yeah. What album was it? He called us the legendary Carver Brothers. Yeah. Kind, you know, kind you, revolution I can't yeah. tell you what that meant to me. You know, it's like such a small thing to do. And, you know, I text him straight away and went, just bought your album, mate. Thanks. You know, that's all right. You know, it's just, if that's 40 years He's remembered the legendary Carver brothers. Yeah. It, and, you know, as again, me and Sam the other day, we, we walk, uh, I always say, if I change Paul Weller to Elton John, you won't believe this. But we walked through a Ripley the other day and Paul's sitting at a cafe. So, hello, Paul. Hello, Tuffy. How are you going? And straight away he just goes, you coming to any gigs? And I went, yeah, of course I. Now, weirdly, 
two years ago, my daughter moved to Portsmouth. And the day she moved there, I sat at Weatherspoons outside the Guildhall. And my daughter, I said to my daughter, believe it or not, Charlie, 100 years ago, you sell T-shirts there. And then the tour dates come up. And I think the last date of the tour was Portsmouth Guildhall. So I just said to Paul, like, I was feeling sorry for myself. I said to Paul, can I bring my daughter to that gig? Because I'm going to hand my gig going baton over to say, I'm done. Here's your gig going back. And he went, oh, he said, I love it when things like that happen, the full circle. Now, two weeks ago, we sat outside a cafe with Paul. He went, you're going to any gigs? I went, I'm still waiting to come to that Portsmouth one. Fucking <laughs> two years later, he still hadn't done it, is he? got the ticket. And he went, yeah, he said, we talked about this, didn't we? Steve, the best bit about that day was when Paul, like, you've all heard of Tufty's tours, you know, around Woking. Well, we're sitting there, actually, back at Anne's house. He said, Tufty, he said, I want to come on the tour. <laughs> he wants to do Tufty. And we're going, what? <laughs> and then the best thing was, he said, well, how long does it take? And Steve said, well, how many fucking questions are you going to ask? <laughs> I mean, I want to do it. I think I'm going to do it with Sheesby and Paul. But they just go, and this is where Paul was born. And then just stand there going, fucking ain't right, is it? And that's <laughs> Tufty's Tours, tell me about this. How did this start? Right. And how did you get on it? I think it was Stuart's book, wasn't it? Thick as Thieves. And I was laying on a beach in the Canary Islands or something, and that fat <laughs> over there. <laughs> <laughs> he texts me and when so Sam goes, I've got this great idea. Let's do a coach trip to tie in with Stuart's thing. And so we'd done dress rehearsals, didn't we? And, you, right, you know, this happened there and this happened there and this happened there. And the day before, wonderfully, Sam, we met in a pub and we went, right, Sam, we got like 12 locations and we went and took a photograph of an album sleeve at every location. And on the way home, we went and saw Anne, didn't we? And because the first thing Anne says, what are you, you two fuckers up to now? Always, <laughs> always, isn't it? And of course, and then Anne gives you loads more stories. So it just got bigger and bigger. And then I can remember, so we'd done the tour and, what we thought would take half an hour took three hours because everyone's got stupid questions. And it, it went on it went on forever. And then about several months later, I was sitting in a pub and my phone rang and it was Nikki. And she just went, you know, you're tall. And I went, yeah. She went, can we film it? And I went, well, why would you want to do that? And she went, well, I'm going to do an exhibition of jam stuff. I remember just thinking, who in their right mind is going to go to an exhibition with some black and white suits and some black and white shoes? And I just thought, this isn't going to work at all. And then when you walked in there, you just went, as you all know, wow, how good is this? And I'll still say now, now, but Bowie and the Stones have followed in Nikki's footsteps, I think. She proved it could be done, you know, and I was the first to say, no one in the right, you know, like uh, there's a suit or Paul wore one's big deal. You know, I just thought this is mental. And here we are looking forward to Brian, yeah. I was going to say this summer, the exhibition New, the Style Council, the Jam, and Weller Solo, by the sounds of things. Bigger than ever, the next exhibition. That must be so strange walking into those kind of things for the first time. Like The memories must just come it, flooding I, back. I remember the black, the first time at Somerset House, like pubes, shoes. And just think the times so I just threw them in the back of the band. Like, shoes, you know, and suddenly they're the Shroud of Turin or something. <laughs> it's just, yeah, weird. And that's, yeah, exactly. Who's, who's pew? Paul? You don't know Pubis? I didn't know this. No. Rick's Pew. Oh, I didn't know this. Paul's called John. Rick's called Pube. God knows what Bruce is called. Yeah, no. Oh, I didn't know no, no, no one had real names, see? Rick is Paul, so you can't have two Pauls. 
So he had to be called Pew. And I know from how did this happen from inside information, because I've seen Steve Brooks do his chat show, and he said when when Paul and Steve Brooks were in the group, Brooksy was called Pew because his hair looked like pubes. But somehow, cleverly, he managed to push it on the Rick. <laughs> so then Rick become Pew. So weirdly, when I still see Rick now, as we do, we bump into him in the calf, don't we? And, you know, I, I call him Pew, which is kind of weird. Who wants to be called Pew? Yeah, it's not the most <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The anniversary party was something I wanted to talk to you about. So what we'll was talk- the anniversary party? Jo- John, and, John and Anne's, John and Anne's yeah. anniversary wow, party. That, yeah. uh, that's... I think hand on heart and say that's the most drunk I've ever been in my life. <laughs> it was mental. Me and my wife went there. It was in some posh hotel in London. And me and my wife went there. And my wife, annoyingly, thinks Oasis are better than the jam. And I've tried to tell her they're not, but she won't listen. That's why she's not here today. That's why, yeah. <laughs> I remember once, um, she told me once, Oasis are a better group than the jam. And I, I just went, Oasis are good, but they're not that Oh, you're not gonna be that good. And Noel was there. And I remember going at the bar and no and I said to Noel, what do you want to drink? And he went, lang, 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 like that. And I introduced <laughs> I introduced my wife to Noel. My wife's a Man City fanatic, and she stood there with Noel talking. And I, I remember I had an eight-pound throwaway camera. And I, you know, so I let her bore Noel's ears off a bit, and then I went and, and I started taking photos. And by about the eighth photo, he's going to punch me in the head, which was quite great. <laughs> I'll come back to the other story in a minute. But fantastically, after that, we went to see Paul at Guildford Civic and Noel was there. And it had been a few months. So, like, Ruth went up and Noel went, you don't remember me, do you? He went, went, yeah, of course I do. You were that fucking mad mank bird, aren't you? <laughs> so, again, they started talking how good Georgie Kinkladzi is. And Ruth said, while she was talking, all these kids were coming up getting photos and selfies and, and autographs. And, and Ruth said, no, look, I'll see you're busy. I'll leave you. And he went, please don't. And so her head got even bigger. <laughs> now, fast forward, and I can put a date on this because my daughter's coming up to 21. 21 years ago, Paul rung me up and went, Tufty, are you coming to see me at Shepherd's Bush? And I went, uh, my wife's going to have a baby any minute, Paul. And he went, don't worry, I'll get you really good seats. So I went, all right. And that, <laughs> so I went, all right, we're come. We got to the really good seats and Noel Gallagher was sitting there. So my missus went, and Noel, you don't remember me, do you? And he went, yeah, you're like a fucking mad mank bird, aren't you? <laughs> and so she sat there talking to Noel, and I swear again, this is true. What do you think of uh, Sean Goater and all that shit, you know? And then Paul went, all right, please welcome on stage, Mr. Noel Gallagher. My missus went, Noel! I think you meant to be on stage. <laughs> Going back to the party. I want, to, I want to ask one question about that. So that gig, Paul plays English Rose. Yes, that was one of them moments where my two of my worlds crunched together. I can feel now the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. Paul played English Rose. My wife was sitting there with my daughter in her tummy and Paul Weller's singing English Rose. And I, I remember just going, you know, that thing where you're, oh, what's the difference in years between that? 20 years ago. Yeah, I remember that distinctly, that being one of them, yeah, mad out-of-body experience moments. Yeah. Great story about Charlie and the Wellers. Paul's 50th birthday. Weirdly or not, me and Charlie, my daughter and my wife, we were going to Selsey Bill for a holiday <laughs> on a Saturday. And I bumped into Anne in the Woking and she went, hello, Tufty. She went, it's Paul's 
50th. I went, yeah, I know it. She went, are you coming to Hammersmith Odeon? We're having a bit of a party. Oh, yeah, right, I'll be there. So I had to go home to my wife and I said, like, we've got to go to Selsey Bill a day later because it's Paul's birthday. And some Charlie was about four, I suppose. I said, Charlie, we've got to go to, on holiday a day late because one of my friends is having a birthday party. Is it important? I said, yeah, it's quite important. So I went to the birthday party. Paul sung with Roger Daltrey on stage, if anyone was there. Fantastic night, magic bus. So um, the next day, we went to Selsey Bill a day late. As we was walking through the high street, Anne approached us. And I went to Charlie. Charlie, you know the man whose birthday party I had to go to? Went, yeah. I went, this is his mum. Oh, hello, hello, blah, blah. And give Charlie 20 quid to go on the dodging cars or something like that. Got that out of the way. Went back to the caravan and English Rose or something on the radio. And I went, Charlie, you know the man whose birthday party I had to go to? Yeah. I went, that's him singing now. Is he famous? I went, well, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Wow, that's weird. And Anne had said to us, Sunday morning, come round for tea and cakes. So the next day we went round for tea and cakes. We were having tea and cakes with Anne. John was up getting ill now, bless him. So 12 o'clock, John come out of his bedroom in a dressing gown with his lovely hair all disheveled. And I'm going, Charlie, <laughs> you know them. And, and a poor little kid, I could see her head going, I don't understand this stuff at all. Yeah, brilliant. Right, back to the anniversary. Back to the anniversary party. Um, Noel Gallagher, blah, 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 all that. Absolutely out of my brain. And John, bless his heart, said, how are you getting home, Tufty? I went, I ain't got a fucking clue, mate. And he went, is a hotel key for the Dorchester or something? And he gives his hotel key for the Dorchester. So, right, so we went out of the gig and the paparazzi were there looking for Noel. And it was like, is Noel Gallagher there, mate? Is that, and I've done me obligatory. Go and get a proper job. Why don't you? So, <laughs> so we got in a taxi to the Dorchester. You know, it's probably two o'clock in the morning or something. And we, so John had given us the key to the Dorchester, walked in. And there's a couple of blokes cleaning glasses. And I went, can I have a drink? And he went, no, we're closed. And I went, well, I'm, I'm a guest. <laughs> and he opened the bar and we just sat there drinking. God knows. And then went to bed that night. And I remember the next day my missus rung me, woke me up just when it's two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure we're meant to be out of bed by now. And like I say, that was John all over. Just give us a, give us a key to a London hotel. God, to be that young again. <laughs> Good. Hey, look, man, this has been so special. I have two final questions for you before you go. Um, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam. It could be The Style Council. Or it could be Paul Weller Solo. What are you going to go I've with? never, ever changed my opinion from this, from the day I heard it. Talking to Mr. Baxter the other day, I said, Paul Weller, believe it or not, went to the same school as me. He obviously wasn't listening to the same teachers as me because he come up with a line what says... Jesus saves painted by an atheist nutter. I went, that's, to me, that's beyond genius. Any other songwriter in the world would go religious nutter. Paul being awkward, but atheist nutter. <laughs> Down in the Tube Station is my favourite song on my favourite album by my favourite songwriter, by my favourite band. I've never changed my opinion on that. I think it's a work of genius. It's a film, isn't it? That is a film. I know all the characters in that film. Oh, with Baxter, someone should film that. That that's a film. That's play for today, isn't it? Directed by Mike Lee. It's brilliant. Oh, you know, Nikki said to me the other day. But even now, that noise you get in the tubes, that bush, 
and as Paul would say, you always were a fucking punk. And that's it, you know, that's it. It's I remember Mike reading that moaning about the violence of it. And you just think, what can't you hear? I remember Dennis Mundy once telling me it's got too many words in it. And I went, what are you talking about? He went, it's got too many words in it. I went, tell that to a jam audience who sing every syllable of every word. And, you know, that is the British national anthem, isn't it? It's, sorry, it's fantastic. You know, each their own. What a song. What a song. I love it. Is it preceded by A-Bomb on the yep. album? Well, you know, I remember Danny Baker once in an interview saying albums should finish on a mellow note. No, they shouldn't, mate. You know, <laughs> come on. You know, get nah. And, of course, the closing song to the concerts, the pyrotechnics and all that. Yeah. yeah. I just love watching your face because you kind of just drift back there. It, it's there. It's, yeah, um, you're, like, um, I've, you're I've, back, I've, you're I've, back in those I'll say it again, mate. I will never, ever say it was nothing, really. It was everything. It was everything. Life-changing moments. Mm. Paul Weller moved into a house in the bottom of my garden. What are the actual chances? And I'll say it again. Guess who lived in the bottom of my garden? Elton John. Fuck off, did he? You know, <laughs> no one believes this shit. No one believes this shit. But it happened. It actually happened. People say to me now they should make a film of it. No one will believe it. Talk to Nicky about taking lions for walks around Woking. No one will believe this shit. But it happened. Man, you need to do a book. Everybody agree. I mean, guys, you know, this is... And do you know what? Do you know what? I, I, know that we, I know that we've only touched... We've only scratched the surface of the stories here. That's the thing I know as well. Final question. Purpose of this podcast. Yeah, yeah right. It's to meet people like you, Tufty, but it's to get to this end point. It's to get to Paul Weller. It's to do the interview that I've never managed during my radio career. If it happens, and if you can't make it happen, I don't know who the heck will. If it happens, when it happens, what should I ask him? What should you ask him? Fancy a curry. It always works for me. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please give a big round of applause to Tufty. Absolute legend. Thank you all. Thank you. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to Tufty. Thank you for listening as well. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, do make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and follow as well. Plus, if you can share the podcast on your social media channels, it does help to spread the word amongst the Paul Weller, the Jam, the Style Council communities. You can find me on social media as well. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook Paul Weller Fan Podcast. You'll find more information about the podcast with show notes and special features on my website as well. And you can even buy me a virtual coffee too. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. Next up on the podcast, we hear from Little Barry. Barry Cadigan is my very special guest on the next episode of the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.